It's good to see you all here tonight. It's uh, great to have such a big crowd, especially after Pastor announced it last week that I'd be preaching. I'm impressed. It's wonderful. I was talking to Chris uh, Perry this afternoon. I'm just getting organised up here and I, I don't own a watch that's going at the moment, so I've got my phone and I'm going to be careful with your time tonight. I know that we're all keen to get through to supper later on. I was talking to Chris this afternoon about uh, how long since I've preached. Quite a few years. So uh, don't let the grey hair fool you. I'm a, I'm a rookie at this end of the building. I heard about a young fellow who was preaching up a storm doing his level best and there was a little old lady in the front row and she said, That's D.L. Moody! And he uh, was taken aback that she'd call out while he was preaching, but he, he kept going, did his best. She called out, that's Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> so using his authority from the pulpit, he gave her that, that, that nasty stare, you know, and he looked at her for a while, hoping that would be the end of that. He preached on for a bit longer, and she, she called out, that's Hudson Taylor. <laughs> well, he, he just had too much. So uh, he looked at her and he said, I'm, I'm trying to speak here. Would you please just be quiet? She said, that's you. And, uh, so you feel free to heckle me tonight if, uh, if something's not credited to the right person. It's uh, being up here for the first time and uh, uh, at the church here, I get to do things a little bit differently, so I probably should have okayed it with pastor, but something we don't normally do is stand to read the word of God, and I'd like to do that tonight if we could. We're starting in, uh, in Luke chapter 7. I think that Elise has kindly put a bit of an outline on the bulletin, which I'll also work at, at staying with. But if you could find Luke chapter 7, and if you're able, uh, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word tonight, that would be great. We're beginning at verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. <clears throat> and when he heard of Jesus... He sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and that it changes not. We thank you so much that we have the great privilege of looking into it tonight. We pray, Father, that as we look at this familiar passage, that you guide our thoughts and you'd speak to our hearts tonight. May everything that uh, are my words be soon forgotten, but we pray that yours would remain. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in verse 1 there that the, uh, uh, 
that Jesus had just finished teaching the parables and he was now entering into Capernaum, a place I haven't been, but I'm told it's a, a beautiful town by the shore of Galilee. And in verse 2, we see that uh, this centurion is, uh, is introducing his servant into our text here. The servant uh, is an, affection, an affectionate term used here for boy. Uh, the rest of the text actually refers to him uh, as a bond servant. We looked at that this morning, a, a servant for life. And I said to Pastor at the end of the services this morning, I think that between he and Troy, nearly everything I'm going to cover tonight was covered. So um, it's good if you're visiting tonight, some of it will be fresh for you. A good definition. We see that the, uh, sorry, the, the centurion uh, loved his servant. He had compassion on him. A good definition for compassion is someone else's hurt in your heart. And so we see the centurion here had a special relationship with his servant. A servant's something that we're not very familiar with in our culture, but just a few hundred years ago, uh, domestic servants and other servants were quite common. A good rapport between master and servant, however, has not been common throughout history. When I was a teenager, we lived in a house in the UK, and it had the, uh, the buttons in each room that you could press, and someone's a servant. We didn't have the servants, but we had the buttons and the system still there. And for hundreds of centuries, it was commonplace in the UK to have domestic servants. Um, there was actually a term used. If a master or employer would come across a servant, they would, uh, the servant would have to give way. And that term referred to the servant turning their face to the wall. If they met in a hallway or a stairwell, the servant would then turn their face to the wall while the master or employer walked past. I think that's a stark contrast to the image we have portrayed here of the centurion who loves his servant. In Matthew chapter 8, we don't need to turn there, but that's the, the parallel passage with this one. We find that the centurion's servant was very sick. He was paralysed and literally ready to die. It's never easy to watch someone suffer and because of the centurion's compassion he was moved beyond pity. Even sorrow he was moved to action. He couldn't sit idly by and watch. He had to find a way to help. And what makes the centurion even more remarkable is the way that he had fulfilled his office. Being a centurion, he's a commander of a garrison charged with keeping order amongst the Jews, holding down a turbulent people. If there was trouble in town, the centurion would dispatch the soldiers. They'd go in by force and sort things out. They'd restore order using horses, swords, shields, separating adversaries and taking prisoners as required. You can imagine that the centurion would normally be at odds with the people. It was common for the Jews to despise the Romans. He would certainly be feared but not liked. Maybe a little bit like today when we see the red and blue lights. I had a chat with a couple of the gentlemen just before the service about that. Uh, my most recent dealing with those uh, pretty red and blue lights was the, uh, the breath test. And I had a, a gentleman say to me, the officer, he pulled me over and he said, have you had anything to drink tonight, sir? I said, no, I don't drink. He said, well, you must be thirsty. And I didn't think that was terribly funny, but I had a pretty good laugh. And it, uh, it harks back to that relationship with the authority, doesn't it? I wasn't going to continue the conversation any longer than I needed to, but I had a good laugh, and then as soon as he was finished, I drove off. But we see here a totally different relationship. The centurion in our text is absolutely remarkable. 
He wasn't hated. He wasn't treated with um, the political formalities that were due his office. He was treated like a friend. He influenced the elders, the religious and, uh, and cultural leaders of the people to deliver a message for him to Christ. It wasn't because of his strength or his reputation we find that the elders weren't coerced to go. They went willingly out of a desire to help the one who had helped them. Verse 5 tells us that they said, he loves our nation. But back in verse 3, we see that he heard of Jesus, the one who does miracles. The centurion was excited to hear that Jesus was close by and that possibly he would help. Everything gets better when Jesus shows up. He took advantage of the opportunity and asked the Saviour, our Saviour, for help. We need to do the same. We need to take advantage of the opportunities we have. We need to be spending time with the people of God in church. If we're genuine in our love for God, we'll also love God's people. Uh, turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, uh, 19 to 25, we'll read there. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God commands us to assemble together at church. Lancaster Baptist has a saying, three to thrive. There should be a love for the local church. Parachurch ministries are great. But if you're going to have an effective Christian life, it's going to be in and through and by the local New Testament church. The pillar and ground of the truth. We also need to be reading our Bibles and praying. It's impossible to be a Christian and not pray. That would be like saying someone's alive but not breathing. If we're to be blessed, we must be meditating in the word in the dispensation that we live in, time frame that we're in, we have an incredible access to Jesus, our high priest. We have every opportunity to spend time with God and every opportunity to grow closer to him. In fact, we know God right now just as much as we want to. He's available for any one of us right now. He tells us in Proverbs 8:17, those that seek me early shall find me. Pastor's been taking us through Revelation. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come to him and sup with him and he with me. One day we'll all have the privilege that Zacchaeus had to sup with the Lord. Matthew 5.6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, Hebrews tells us. All promises to us through Christ are yes. Every promise of God to us is available through Christ. So the centurion recognised that he had an opportunity too good to pass up. 
He sent a request to the one he'd heard about, Jesus. He'd heard about the one who made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the lepers were cleansed, the deaf hear, even the dead were raised to life. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Jesus could do miracles 2,000 odd years ago and he still can now. But if we look at verse 4, we find in our text here that uh, we see a shallow plea of worthiness. The elders didn't have a lofty view of Jesus. The Jewish leaders thought of Jesus as one of them. Maybe some gift of prophecy, but they still saw the Lord as being just like them. Their view of Jesus wasn't lofty and they approached the Messiah with a plea in accordance with their assessment of who he was. They were not filled with awe. They focused on the mission they had. And in verse 4, we see the justification for their actions. They said, he is worthy. I'm not talking about the saviour. They're talking about the centurion. He is worthy. Their view of Jesus wasn't lofty and their respect for the centurion was overinflated. Our estimation of who Jesus is will determine whether we can approach him with the word worthy on our lips. The higher we lift our thoughts of Christ, the lower become our thoughts of ourselves. The elders approached Jesus singing the praises of the centurion, pleading his worthiness based on what they saw of him. The elders saw the centurion from the outside, assessed his character accordingly. But God looks on the heart of man and not just on the exterior. I enjoyed staying at Pastor Hines' place at the start of the year. He's got a fantastic set of commentaries there. McLaren, didn't know who he was before I stayed, but awesome stuff. McLaren says this, There's no more unprofitable or impossible occupation than that of trying to estimate other people's characters. Yet, there are few things that we're so fond of doing. Half our conversation consists of it, and a very large part of what we call literature consists of it. And it's bound to be always wrong, whether it's complimentary or condemning, because it only deals with the surface. As Jesus entered Capernaum, the elders brought a shallow plea to the Saviour, just like we are tempted to do as well. We're inclined to do things with little patience and fall into the trap of approaching the Almighty with a sense of our own worthiness. Even our service can be tainted with impure motives. We go to places we don't really want to, to do things that we'd rather not, while thinking about things we rather would do, all the while reasoning that we've pleased God. We do things with an attitude of, well, I've obeyed a little and now I'll have God's favour. An attitude of I've been doing this for ages and lightning hasn't struck yet, it must be okay. We're prone to barter with God. Luther said that every man was born with a, uh, having a pope in his belly, which is a funny way to express it. But he's saying we have a pope within, a sense of consulting or rather earning a hearing with God creeps into our lives. We do a little good and then we relax, a little... Uh, a little rest, we have a little me time. Mentioned this morning again about uh, Troy said, I think, plonking down on the couch. Uh, not a good place to put yourself. Easy to get bogged in the couch. Stay there all night. 
We go to church and when we get home, we go straight for something to amuse ourselves, some sort of entertainment, assuming the Lord's been pleased with the little time we've spent with the congregation. We run to social media or something else to amuse. Muse is an interesting word. It came into the English language in the 14th century and for about 300 years its primary meaning, whether A-muse or B-muse, it, um, it was meant to cause to divert its primary meaning was to deceive or to cheat, to beguile. From this it became to divert from serious business and then later to entertain as we know it. So uh, word origin is the source I've used to get this from. They say that therefore to be amused was a description of a person standing in the street with his nose in the air, having completely lost his train of thought or utterly confused or of a dog sniffing at the ground, having lost its scent. Is this a description of the church today? It would seem that many of us, many in the broader church, have been amused uh, to the point of distraction. If we're going to be a light amongst the world around us, we have to have a life of distinction, not a life of distraction. Back to verse 5, we see the centurion was highly esteemed because he built a synagogue. We must be careful not to reason that because of our worthiness we'll move Jesus to deal graciously with us. This is the way multitudes see the path to heaven. By doing good, we can outweigh the bad and make it into heaven. In essence, entry, becomes, entry to heaven becomes something that's, that comes at a price, a price that we can uh, pay, a price that can be bought. They presume to do the best they can and they'll be accepted by a God, a God of their own making. We know there's only one way to heaven, isn't there? I remind my children constantly, how many ways? And we often have people suggest strange things to us when we're out and about and interacting and I just say to them, how many ways to heaven are there? One, through the Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except by the Son. So in verse 6, did Jesus go with them because of their argument, their impassioned plea? I've heard it preached that way, but I have to disagree. Was he persuaded because of their passion or because of the virtues of the centurion? Jesus didn't go with them because of their petition. He wasn't moved by the centurion's good works. No amount of amassing worthiness is going to impress the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went with them because of who he is, because of his character. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Long before we loved him, he loved us. 1 John 4.10 says, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus went with them because of who he was, but sometimes we fail to even take our request to the Lord. It's not that we haven't heard of him. We too, like the centurion, have heard of Jesus. But as our perspective changes, as our focus moves off the Saviour, we can uh, stop relying on him. We can develop an attitude of uh, self-reliance. We can think so highly of ourselves that we stop drawing on the power available to us, the power of God Almighty. We can develop a spectacular arrogance. It happens slowly over time and and creeps in, stemming from pride. I heard about a, a successful business couple. They were going for a drive. He was a CEO of a rather large company, and she was quite successful in her own right. 
As they left town, they had to stop for fuel, so they, they stopped. He was uh, putting the petrol in, and uh, she ran into the shop to get a few bits and pieces and pay. And when she came back, she hopped in the car and started driving again. She said, I used to go to high school with the guy behind the counter. And uh, as they drove on, things were a bit quiet. After a while, the husband turned to the wife, and he, he said, I bet I know what you're thinking. She said, all right, I'll play the game. What am I thinking? And he said, I bet you're glad you married me and not the guy in the service station. And uh, no one works in the service station, do they, tonight? <laughs> um, she said, no, actually, I was thinking that if I'd married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be working in the service station. So the, the pride creeps in, doesn't it? So if we flick down there to verse 8, we see that the elders told the Lord that he must come because the centurion was worthy. However... The centurion had come to a different conclusion. Sorry, verse 7. The centurion has a view of himself, one that others don't see, a view from within. And he estimates himself as being not worthy. As he contemplates the one he has heard about and reflects on his own sinfulness. No one can begin to comprehend God's love until they've looked at the foulness of their own sin. But that's not the way of the world around us, is it? Some people have become the sun in their own solar system. I once had someone say to me that the way we refer to ourselves as Christians, uh, the terms that we use about ourselves, are not good for our self-esteem. I think he was objecting to things like the hymn by Isaac Watts at the cross. You know the verse, uh, that would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I have to agree that it's not uplifting, uh, uplifting, sorry, positive or good for my pride to think of myself as a worm. Well, that man's not in church at all now, and I have to ask myself why. I think there's one component that's, that's sorely missing in his life, is faith. The catalyst to life is faith, trusting God. Hebrews 4.2 says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Faith seems very scarce. Trust in God seems scarce today. The newer hymnals replace worm with sinner, a bit more palatable. Some of them go so far as to replace sinner and just say, for such a one as I. Isaac Watts used the word worm because he understood even his best deeds were like filthy rags before a holy God. He understood what Paul said when he said the things that he loved most before he was saved, the things he valued the highest, his noblest deeds, he now counts as dung. It's not much lower than dung. You wouldn't even step in it. Isaac Watts, the Apostle Paul, the Centurion, the Prophet Isaiah, they had the same heart. Isaiah said in 64.6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. <clears throat> as the representatives were going, the centurion then contemplated further the power of the one he had petitioned. He recognised that he was unworthy to go himself and instead sent the delegation on his behalf. But while they were gone, 
he realised in his humility that he was also unworthy of having this one, Jesus, in his home. He knew the power of the spoken word. He could exercise his authority and commands the soldiers at will. But now he seems to have had a moment of clarity as he realises that Jesus, by his spoken word, commands not just enlisted soldiers, but men from all walks of life, even dead men. Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves, over all creation. Surely his word will be enough. I wonder, is his word enough for you today? The centurion has realised that he can have his need met not on the basis that he's worthy because he isn't worthy. None of us are worthy of the love of Jesus Christ. But, he can have, but we can have the Lord's blessing. We can experience the, the glorious bliss of his presence now and in eternity if we will just trust him. Hebrews 10, 38 and 9 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. The centurion sought help from the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew he needed divine help. No amount of earthly toil will produce a heavenly result. We labour in vain unless God's in a thing. Just as in salvation, so also in service, we need the power of the living God in all we do. In verse 9, I think we're done with the introduction. No, I'm only joking. We're nearly there. Verse 9, Jesus marvelled at him. He marvelled at the centurion's great faith. Only twice in all of scripture is it said that the Lord marvelled. Both times regard people's faith. Mark 6, 6, he marvelled because of their unbelief. But here Jesus, fully God and fully man, stopped and marvelled at the centurion's trust in him. Oh, that we might marvel, we might cause the Lord Jesus Christ to marvel at our faith. The centurion sets a wonderful example for us. We're commanded to follow those of great faith. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 10, we find that because the centurion asked, Jesus made the servant whole. Note that the centurion didn't ask for himself. He asked in faith that Jesus would do what only Jesus could for his servant. God wants to reach the world around us, the people that we know, the people we meet tomorrow, our neighbours, relatives, through us. Will we ask him? It's not that God's not able in fact, he's well able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or even think and imagine. The Father has given all power to the Son. Matthew 28, 18. It's not that he isn't willing. If we ask anything in his name, he's promised to do it. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I've got in my notes here, uh, 
That's not a Chinese proverb. It's easy to be cheeky when you're looking at the computer. This is actually a promise from the Saviour of the world, isn't it? A promise to us, the righteous, risen and reigning King. If we dwell with the Lord and are in tune with him, we can ask according to his will and he'll do as we ask. What an amazing couple of principles to hold in tension. If you turn with me to one last passage in uh, John 5.24, we'll read a, a verse there. John 5.24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You notice the tense there, hath everlasting life, is passed from death to life. It's already done. If a person hears and believes, it's done. They already have everlasting life. They've already passed from death to life. Uncle Google tells me there are 6,316 people slipping into eternity every hour. Will we take the message out this week and tell one how to be saved? Will our faith affect others like the centurion's faith affected his servant? Sin creeps in and distorts our view of things. It shackles us. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's the one thing, isn't it? The sin that creeps into our lives is the thing that will distract us and keep us from putting our trust in the risen Saviour. It will shackle us, hold us back and keep our thoughts from ever rising to the things of heaven. We can develop a warped view of ourselves and of the Saviour. We put our trust in many places but lose the joy and freedom of trusting the one who does miracles and makes whole. pastor mentioned this morning about dethroning sin in our lives and having liberty from the cruelty and penalty of sin. I want to encourage you this week to have faith like the centurion and put your trust in the Saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the truth of it. Lord, we pray that you would please uh, do a mighty work in our hearts tonight. Put your finger on anything in our lives that's restricting your blessing and restricting our faith. Help us to put our trust in you, have an accurate view of who we are before your throne of grace. By your power, Lord, would you give us an understanding more of your holiness that we can truly appreciate this salvation that we have. Bless each one here this week, I pray, Lord, and this night. Encourage our hearts and help us to have the faith that the centurion had. In Jesus' name, amen.